In our world, there is magic in the darkness. Sorcery and incantations which bring us closer to the essence of the night. Come enter our black magic shop. Where we will conjure up tales to frighten and disturb. This journey will be spellbinding. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Welcome, visitors, to the No Sleep Magic Shop. I'm your proprietor, David Cummings. This week, we conjure spells for you about trying to look after yourself and your loved ones. Our No Sleep Movie Poster Contest has entered the final stage. Thanks to the many people who voted for the No Sleep stories they would like to see turned into one of our illustrator Sabu's iconic movie-style posters. The five finalists have been tallied and are awaiting your votes. The finalists are The Mummer Man, The Search and Rescue Series, The Pancake Family, The Things We See in the Woods, and My Anime Body Pillow. In the show notes, you'll find a link to the voting form. And while an email address isn't required to vote, if you would like to be entered into the contest to win a mounted poster of the winning selection, just include your email address when you vote. And as always, we never spam or sell your email. So pick your story and make a note to cast your vote so you can gloat and jump in a moat. Hm. I'm not sure why I wrote that. <clears throat> now... Close your eyes and embrace the magic. In our first tale, we witness a single mother driving her kid to therapy. Her boy's hallucinations can get rather violent and unpleasant, and his therapist really thinks they're making progress. But in this tale, shared with us by author Haley Hendershot, the benefits of therapy aren't necessarily visible to the mother, leaving her quite concerned. Performing this tale are Nicole Doolin and Ellie Hirschman. So always keep an eye on your kids and what they might be visualizing. Maybe question where that's coming from and why. After all, parents say they only want the best for my son. I saw them again today, Mommy. I glanced in the rearview mirror at my son, who was mindlessly running his fingers through a book in his booster seat. Who'd you see, baby? Jamie's wandering hand stopped on a random page as he tilted his head up with an expressionless stare. I have to admit, for a seven-year-old little boy, he was really good at making eye contact. The Melty Men. 
Jamie's occurrences with the Melty Men was not at all new. In fact, we had been dealing with his visions of them since he was able to talk. After years of struggling with this, with the help of a specialist, the two of us were Melty Men free for almost two months. Oh? I thought Dr. Young helped you send them back to Fireworld. He shifted in his seat, snapping the book shut. Fiery Gates, not Fireworld. I focused my eyes on the road, realizing this conversation was about to unravel all of our hard work and $500 therapy sessions. Right, sorry. Fiery Gates. Jamie, I know they get mad when you talk to me about them, but are the Melty Men at least being nice this time? His voice perked up and a smile spread across his face. Oh yeah, they said sorry for my arms and my neck. They don't want to hurt me no more. They let me draw them now, too. I don't gotta hide my pictures. The Melty Men had gotten increasingly aggressive as Jamie got older. At one point, his hallucinations had instructed him to light his arms on fire by dousing them with gasoline and pressing matches to his skin. Luckily, I caught him before he could cause too much damage. However, scars still litter sections where the flames I couldn't put out in time ignited. I don't know which was worse. This or the time he got a hold of a kitchen knife and jabbed it into his neck because his visions told him to. Fourteen days in the hospital. Another thirty days in a psych ward. Three appalling visits from CPS. And twenty thousand dollars is what a knife to the neck costs. Who knew? Is that so? They aren't going to be mad at me for looking at your sketches anymore? Jamie nodded excitedly. Uh-huh. Want to see one now? Not right now, baby. I have to keep my eyes on the road. The truth was, I couldn't stomach another image of the Melty Men. Jamie drew incredibly detailed pictures of bony human figures with their flesh peeling off oozing yellow chunky pus. Their eyes were bright white, sunken, while their mouths held a terrifying frozen scream. Sometimes the drawings included those horribly disfigured things gruesomely murdering Jamie. I'll never forget the day his teacher called me in for a meeting. During class, he had sketched himself sitting at a dinner table, fork and knife in hand, eating his own organs that spilled out of a large gaping hole in his stomach. The Melty Men were laughing hysterically behind him. While Jamie might have the art skills of Picasso, his style is quite disturbing and got him kicked out of public school. I know, Mommy. We don't want to crash like Daddy. I... I just... I miss seeing him. After the crash, though, not before... He's a lot more beautiful after. I want to talk to him. I can't no more because... I could tell he was getting upset. He always tried to hide his tears to act tough. Three months before, my husband Leo, Jamie's father, was T-boned by a drunk driver on the way home from getting surprise presents for Jamie's birthday. The first responders said he was dead upon impact. His spine was snapped clean in half and most likely didn't even know what happened. This traumatic freak accident caused Jamie to hallucinate that Leo was with him, 
except with a crooked back. I wasn't too worried that his illness had manifested and added my husband to his collection. At least this one comforted him. Honestly, I think Jamie was taking his dad's death harder than I was. Because of Dr. Young? Did he send Daddy somewhere too? He took a deep breath, sounding as if he shuddered. No, Dr. Young can't make Daddy go away. He can't go away until he's happy. It's Saul. He won't let me see Daddy. By this time, I was used to new figures invading Jamie's mind. But having one ward off another was news to me. Well, I've never heard of Saul before. Aren't you going to introduce me? Who is he? While adjusting the mirror, I saw him biting his lip. Like what I had just asked was absolutely forbidden. Um, Saul is the keeper of the fiery gates. He's real powerful and scary. The Melty Men are scared of him. They do what he says. I wish... His sentence abruptly ended as he began to whisper to his newfound invisible friend. Yes, but she's my mom. I gotta tell her. Come on, I was only joking. No, please don't. I'll do anything. Don't make me do it again. Usually I didn't interfere with Jamie's conversations between him and his hallucinations. I'd learned that only made them worse. But this one caused a lot of concern. Everything all right back there? His head hung low, hunkering like an injured dog. Saul says I'm not allowed to talk to you about him. As usual, for some reason, these things he saw like to keep everything hush-hush. I shouldn't have expected anything different from this one. Does Saul have anything else to say? Jamie turned to the seat beside him and mumbled something I couldn't make out, before nodding his head like he had heard a reply clear as day. He says don't worry. Tessa's okay. She can see. Not like me. Like you and Daddy. Like everyone else. But she will be sick for a very long time. Oh, and she has blonde curly hair like Daddy. A wave of terror washed over me. I looked down at my growing belly that was stretching all of my clothes. I was five months along. I remember the day I found out I was pregnant. After weeks of denying it, I finally mustered up the courage to take a pregnancy test. When I saw the positive sign, I burst into tears wailing in Leo's arms. We had both vowed to never have another child, because we couldn't bear the thought of putting another human through what Jamie deals with every day. Even though there was a small chance that the fluke in our genetics would happen again, it was one we couldn't afford to take. Our biggest fear was another child that could see like Jamie. Leo and I succeeded for seven years due to our carefulness, but somehow... Somewhere, there was a slip-up, and I was carrying the result. The death of my husband made the pregnancy even harder to deal with. Most of the time, I pretended the baby didn't exist. So much so that I hadn't told anyone, not even Jamie, I found out it was a girl. Or that she was going to be called Tessa, a name Leah was fond of. I made a U-turn in the road just as I reached the therapist's office. No doctor could fix this. For years, I scrambled to pin a diagnosis on my child, just to give myself a sense of relief. 
I should have known it wasn't schizophrenia, psychosis, or imaginary friends. The medications never worked. The psychiatrist visits never helped. And imaginary friends can't tell secrets. I felt so stupid. I was so caught up in the idea that he could be fixed. I didn't realize that this was far beyond what any medical practice could handle. It was impossible for him to have an extensive vocabulary that geniuses would blush over at such a young age. It was impossible for him to imagine these grotesque monsters that haunted him. It was impossible for him to draw gory murder scenes with the skills of a trained artist that took 20 years to perfect their craft. It was impossible for him to see his dad long after he died, describing the love of my life to an absolute T. And it was extremely impossible for him to know not only that his sister would have blonde hair before she had even taken a breath on earth, but also that Tessa didn't have his condition. After all, my son was born blind. You can't beat a nice, hot, relaxing bath. Bubbles, bath bombs, and bearing it all. But a luxurious soak in the tub is just for adults, apparently. If you're a kid and you enjoy baths, then you're getting bullied for it. Because what won't kids find as an excuse to pick on someone? But in this tale, shared with us by author Wayne Power, switching to showers isn't quite so simple for our friend Eddie there's something off about his shower experiences. Performing this tale are Matthew Bradford, Alexis Bristow, and Peter Lewis. So take the plunge and take a shower, but beware those brief moments when you close your eyes to rinse off your hair. They might seem like they last forever, even if it's only 10 seconds. Ten seconds. It doesn't sound very long, does it? And most people would be thrilled if everyday activities only took this minimal amount of time. Sometimes, though, it can feel like an eternity. I will remember that insignificant amount of time always, reliving those moments every time I dream, close my eyes, and, of course, shower. I was 11 or 12 when I started getting showers. I was a bath kid up until that point. I loved relaxing and playing in the warm water. I looked forward to it. I didn't think it was strange or funny to enjoy them, until the kids at school made it perfectly clear it was. The topic of hygiene and shower routines came up one health class. We were at the age where our bodies would start changing soon. New hair in places, and with it, new odors our bodies didn't release before. As Mr. Hayward went on about shower this and shower that, 
I shot up my hand and blurted out, Baths are fine too, right sir? He didn't even have a chance to answer me before I felt them. The eyes of my classmates turning towards me, grins starting to form throughout the room like they shared a collective mind. The laughter followed, and in between the sounds of mindless guffawing and the teacher trying to silence the class, I started to hear them. I sank into my desk. My stomach felt like it was doing backflips. I had never been so humiliated. In a matter of minutes, I had turned myself into the brunt of a class-wide joke. That evening over dinner, my mom did her usual routine of asking me what was new and if anything eventful had happened at school. Most times, I said same old, same old. Not that night, however. I just looked down at my half-eaten potatoes, stirring them around on my plate. Eddie, what's wrong? My mom moved her seat closer to me. A concerned look had completely overtaken her face. She was worried about her only child like any good mother would be. With a heavy sigh and the tears forming in my eyes, I looked towards my mother and told her everything. After she gave me some comforting words about kids being cruel and how I shouldn't let it bother me, I told her I would be okay and it was just a bad day. She puttered around the kitchen, tidying up, and offered me a bowl of ice cream to end the day right. I'm going to do it. What was that, honey? I'm gonna start showering, Mom. No more baths, no more being a baby. They can't make fun of me if there's nothing to make fun of. That's how it started. Something that should have been so simple. If only I could have known. But how could I? Showering was fine, at first. It was a much faster process than waiting for a tub to fill up. And I enjoyed the speed of it. It wasn't as relaxing, but it was in and out and done. The biggest difference, however, was the curtain. You see, when you get a bath, there's no reason to close the curtain. The shower, though, well, it would make a mess if the curtain wasn't pulled over. It doesn't sound like a big deal, but something about it made me uneasy. I knew no one could come in. It was just my mom and me. Plus, the door would be locked. Mom would knock if she needed something before using the key on the door. But then why did I feel this way? Something I couldn't explain. Just this feeling... I would peek out around the dark blue curtain every few moments just to make sure I was alone. I know it sounds silly. It just made me feel better. The worst part came when it was time to wash my hair and close my eyes. I still remember it. I mean, it's not something you forget. I had showered dozens of times at this point. Closing my eyes and washing my hair was always the worst of it. That day, however... As I started to rub the shampoo into my hair, it happened. That overwhelming feeling of dread. Something was watching me. I knew it. Your body has a way of sensing these things. How could that be, though? Mom's not in here. I have the door locked. It's impossible. It was almost a whimper, but it was there. Someone, no, something, was clearing their throat. <clears throat> That uneasiness drifted away and was replaced with pure fear. I frantically scrubbed at my head and put it under the water. One, the soap bubbles forming and cascading down my body as I began to breathe faster. Quick gasps of air, entering and exiting my lungs as the panic sank in. Two, why did I use so much shampoo? The soap was never ending. Three, 
My quick breath hastened as I was going into a full-on panic attack. It was there. I knew it was there. Watching me. Four. Did the shower curtain just ruffle? Five. I stepped away from the curtain, placing my back against the back wall of the shower and opened my eyes. Six. The soapy water burned my eyes as I opened them, but I didn't care. I had to know what was there. I rubbed at my face quickly to help with my vision. Seven. My eyesight was blurry, but it would do. I reached towards the curtain slowly. Eight. As I gripped the curtain, I suddenly realized my short, quick breaths had disappeared. In fact, I wasn't breathing at all. Nine. With my breath held and me shaking, I pulled the curtain to the side, preparing to come face to face with my tormentor. Ten. Nothing. There was nothing there. Did I imagine the noise? Had my mind created the apparent intruder in my heightened state of fear? <sighs> I exhaled my breath and closed the curtain. I quickly finished getting the shampoo out of my hair and turned off the shower. I stepped out of my empty bathroom and started drying myself off, thinking to myself how foolish I was. Of course nothing was in here. I got myself so worked up for nothing. I stepped towards the sink, rubbing at my wet hair with a towel to get the excess water. As I put the towel down, I instinctively reached out to wipe the residue the steam always left on the mirror. <gasps> my heart sank, barely visible obstructed by the wet mirror. Someone was behind me. I spun around. No one. I frantically looked back at the mirror. He was clearly there looking at me. I wiped away the water and he vanished. I fell forward, catching my hands at the edge of the sink. I thought I was going to throw up. I stared down into the sink, trying to wrap my head around what had been in the mirror. <clears throat> I turned white. You should keep your eyes closed longer. It's more fun when they don't see. I woke up in a heap on the bathroom floor, my mom at my side. She told me how she heard a bang and had come running, finding me on the floor. She explained I must have slipped on the water getting out of the shower and hit my head. I looked up at her, and I agreed. I couldn't tell her, or anyone for that matter. Who would believe me? They would say it was a dream, something brought on from hitting my head. And maybe it was. How could I know for sure? Regardless, I am recounting this from the comfort of a nice, hot bath. The shower curtain open as far as it can go. After all, why risk it? It's easy to let yourself go after a breakup. You stop eating healthy, fail to brush your hair, don't get enough exercise, don't pay attention to the hole that's opening up in the side of your body. Okay, maybe that last one is somewhat unique. But in this tale, shared with us by author C.J. Robinson, 
That's exactly what our friend Alex is dealing with, even if initially he's not that concerned. Performing this tale are Kyle Akers, Jessica McAvoy, Addison Peacock, and Aaron Lillis. So sure, don't worry about the fact that your body's literally falling apart, at least until you start hearing strange sounds coming from your insides. It wasn't meditation that led me to nirvana, nor was it repentance or prayer. I don't know why my gift was bestowed on me. Perhaps my pure desperation echoed in some far corner of heaven and an angel took pity on me. But I'm leaving. If I'm lucky, I won't be coming back. It's not often that someone gets a second chance. I'm writing this, leaving it open on my old laptop, so those who come looking for me won't worry. I did my best to capture my feelings, so you truly understand that I have found something beautiful. So please, don't worry. It started about a month ago, as I drifted along the edge of consciousness and sleep. The brisk January air seeped into my townhouse through the thin walls and cheap windows. The chill made it difficult to fall asleep some nights, but I'd be damned to turn on my heater. At that point, I was more interested in spending my money on extracurriculars. An after-work beer to take the edge off of the day, followed by a few more. A whiskey on the couch to drive out the chill. Another one, or two, or four, to rust the gears of self-destructive thoughts that had ceaselessly chugged on since she left. I stared up at the ceiling and breathed heavily, trying to see my breath in the chill. Not quite cold enough. I could hear my neighbors through the shared bedroom wall, unable to decipher words out of the barely audible murmurs. I listened passively, but I was surprised to hear my neighbors at all. There were a couple in their mid-thirties that had either one average toddler or an entire herd of stampeding buffalo. Normally, the whole family was dead asleep by 10 p.m., one of the parents slamming the door at 6 in the morning and the child shaking the walls at 7. I strained my ears for a little longer, annoyed that I couldn't make out words, just the flow of conversation. Digging into my mismatched blanket cocoon, I willed myself to sleep. My next day started out about on par with my past two months. Woke up late, bleary after a night of drinking. Shower barely heated up. Car wouldn't start, so I had to take the bus. Guy next to me on the bus was both anti-deodorant and anti-headphones. Everything I deserved incarnate. I took her to Louie's for dinner, and we got drinks after. Megan finished buttoning up her work shirt. I tossed my backpack into my work cubby and pulled out my own Java Shack shirt. Nice, man. You like her? Eh. She was okay. I don't think I'll hear from her again, though. Why's that? I yanked off my shirt and threw it on top of my bag. She didn't laugh at a single one of my jokes. Yeah, well, you're not funny. Yeah, exactly, though. She would have laughed anyway if she liked me. Hey, what's that? Her sentences ran together, so I missed the question, until a cold finger jabbed the bear's skin on my side. I jumped. Hey! What is that? A cut? I rubbed the spot, willing away the ghost touch of her freezing finger, but my hands weren't any warmer. A small dip in my skin caused me to gag a little at the alien feeling. 
I turned towards the warped cheap mirror that hung haphazardly next to our cubbies, craning my head far over my shoulder. About five inches below my right armpit, there was a divot. I ran my fingers over it a few times, trying to find pain. There was none, so I shrugged. No idea. Let me get a better look. It could be the start of a staph infection. Don't touch me with your zombie fingers. I slammed my work shirt over my head. They're not that cold. You should let me look at it. My brother is a nurse. Megan breathed on her hands in an attempt to infuse them with warmth. I very much doubted that it would work. I adjusted my hat. That makes you a nurse too? Well, at least keep an eye on it and let me know if it gets worse. I didn't reply. Promise you'll tell me if it gets worse, Alex. Fine! I knew better than to push Megan when she wanted something. She just rolled her eyes and tugged her long ponytail through her hat. Work had been busy enough that Megan agreed to grab a wind-down beer with me. The weather that day had drawn out a larger crowd than normal. Perhaps our shop's beach theme, complete with palm trees, was especially enticing in the dead of winter. A light at the end of the tunnel. Too bad it was just a farce of cheap spotlights and plastic plants. Have you talked to Chloe at all? Megan's tone was casual, but the question made my stomach clench. I shook my head and took a long drink of beer. Have you? Uh... Yeah. I hated when she was like this, making me drag information out of her. Oh yeah? She doing okay? I tried to sound as if I didn't care. In reality, I checked her Instagram daily. I knew how she was doing, significantly better than me, an injustice through and through. Megan shrugged and twirled her beer bottle between her hands. She asked me the same question about you. And what did you tell her? Tell her I'm doing great. Maybe you can tell her new boyfriend that too when you all hang out. I told her the same thing I told you. Nothing. Megan, being the bigger person, decided to ignore the slight, instead keeping the peace. I opted to finish my beer instead of replying. Our stilted silence was soon interrupted by the buzz of Megan's phone. Ooh, I think I gotta go. You gonna be okay? Megan touched my shoulder and I shrugged her hand off of me. Yeah, sure. I'd rather hang out with the new power couple too. Make sure to tell Chloe and that asshole I said hi. What are you talking about? No, I get it. I'd rather hang out with them too, rather than a sad fuck like me. I'm not going to see Chloe. Right. Who are you going to see then? One of your many other friends? I could tell my comment irked her. I didn't feel bad, though. She had it coming. For choosing Chloe over me. Now you're pissing me off. This has been hard for me too, you know. I love Chloe... And you. You keep pushing people away, and eventually you'll get what you're asking for. Megan slapped a few dollars down on the counter and stalked out. A few hours and beers later, and I was ready to brave the outside. Wobbling my way along the icy sidewalks, I barely felt the cold. Either it was warmer than it had been earlier, or my beer blanket was doing a great job. Slumping down, I lit a cigarette and fiddled with my phone. I knew I'd been too harsh on Megan. I opened up my messages, intending to send her an apology. Instead, I saw I had a message from her. It was a screenshot of the conversation between her and that girl she had just gone out with from earlier in the night, asking her to come over. Her silent and pointed proof that I had acted like a tool. Rather than being relieved that Megan hadn't gone to Chloe's, I felt tears well up. Everyone had someone. Except me. I punched in the number and raised my phone to my ear before any common sense could stop me. No answer. I slammed the end button on my phone and tossed my cigarette button to the street, 
From far away, I heard a couple laughing and goofing around. Their happiness made me want to throw up. Luck was on my side when the bus arrived before I had to endure the sight of the couple in love. I awoke early to the sound of the neighbor's kids dropping something on the floor and giggling. Not like they hadn't kept me up all night with their incessant talking. The parents' chatter had droned on all night. Lucky for me, I had a reliant sleep aid. Groaning, I pushed myself up out of my favorite chair. My back cracked in three places, and the tendons in my neck screamed as I righted my head, reaffirming that the chair wasn't the best place to sleep. Not that I had many options. At this point, I had more rooms than furniture. Splitting mine and Chloe's stuff hadn't gone right down the middle. Glancing at my phone, I saw that I was late for work and had managed to scroll all the way back to 2007 on Chloe's Facebook timeline the night before. I could only pray that I hadn't accidentally tapped like on any of them. Alex, you really look like shit. This was the first thing that Megan said to me as I rolled into the break room. Good morning to you too. Neighbors kept me up. I knew I should apologize for last night, but really didn't want to. Yeah, I bet that was it. Your neighbors. She waved her hand in front of her nose. I probably looked and smelled as bad as I felt. I waited for her to mention what a prick I'd been to her yesterday. Megan was gracious enough not to. Or maybe I was so pathetic she felt obligated to let it go. For real, they were talking all night. I threw off my shirt. Same one as yesterday. Hey, do you know that that's gotten way bigger? What has? That. I felt the press of her cold finger in my side. Jesus, stop doing that. I swear, it's doubled in size. You really need to get to a doctor. I didn't even care who turned to look at it in the warped mirror. I just buttoned up my shirt. Who cares? A bright smile tugged at my face. Chloe practically glowed in happiness next to me. Her bright curls bounced around her face, tangled pink from the setting sun. I wore a cheesy party hat that declared, It's my birthday. That was August 2016. My finger stroked the screen, inadvertently zooming the picture. We'd been so happy then, and just moved in together. Getting up from my well-worn chair, I drained the last of my bottle. I could hear my neighbors through the walls. It sounded like they were having a party. Voices and laughter mingled together, louder than ever. Sudden anger flushed through my veins. Did they need to rub their happiness in my face? I banged my fist against the wall. Shut the fuck up! A shower, I decided, running my fingers through my hair. Something besides alcohol to warm me back up. And maybe a beer to go along with the shower. It wasn't my fault that drinking and showering went hand in hand. My bare feet slapped across the linoleum as I made my way to the kitchen. Flipping the switch, I was simultaneously surprised by the lack of light and reminded that the bulb burnt out weeks ago. I'll change it tomorrow, I promised myself, as I cracked open the fridge and dragged out a beer. The small interior bulb filled the kitchen with light, and I was reminded why I hadn't bothered to change the light bulb. My kitchen was much like the rest of my townhouse. Huge, cold, and empty. Staring into a dirty corner, my mind drifted. There used to be a table there. A scrubbed wooden table with Chloe's hand-crocheted lilac doily. And sometimes when they were in season, a mason jar filled with sunflowers that I would buy for her. Sighing, I closed the door and opened my beer, throwing the cap somewhere into the darkened corner. Why is it now that I could remember that sunflowers are Chloe's favorite flowers, but it was so hard for me when it actually mattered? I crouched on the floor, a sudden and unwelcome wave of sobs crashing down on me. I missed my Chloe. 
I missed her so goddamn much. Waiting for the shower water to warm, I worked mechanically to undress. If I was careful, I could avoid touching myself with my cold hands. If I was extra careful, I could avoid seeing my reflection. My empty eyes swollen, nose beat red. I wasn't careful enough. A dark divot caught my attention in the mirror. Megan hadn't been lying. What had felt pea-sized the previous day was now the width of my fingertip. Almost perfectly round, skin caved inward, creating a deep tunnel into my body. Whether through the fog on the mirror or the fog in my alcohol-addled brain, I couldn't see where it ended. Bile filled my throat. Jumping in the shower, warmth began to thaw my frozen limbs. I could feel the water running over my newfound cavity. It didn't hurt, but it felt wrong. Different. A sudden shift in what I knew about my body. I remember a similar feeling from when I got my braces off as a kid. I had run my tongue across the impossibly smooth surface of my teeth for a week before I got used to it. It was a difference that needed to be poked and prodded. I moved my hand towards the hole apprehensive. If it hurt, I'd go to the doctor, I promised myself. I touched along the edges and experienced vertigo with the strange sensation. It didn't hurt. Holding my breath, I dared to explore further, pushing against the inside edges. There was no discomfort, but I could feel the pressure. I pushed the tip of my finger further and further, until my finger was all the way in. I wiggled it a little. No end in sight, I pulled my finger out with a little pop. When I was a kid, my brother had taught me that sucking on my finger and snapping it out of my mouth would create a sharp pop noise. Our mother hated it. After scrubbing thoroughly, I laid in bed, phone resting against my chest. Logically, I knew I should see a doctor about whatever that was, but I couldn't bring myself to care enough. It's not like I had the money to go see a doctor anyway. Chloe would always make me go. Before. Happy birthday to you. I could hear the faint singing coming through the walls. I wanted to scream at my neighbors again, but couldn't muster the energy to move. Instead, I would lay and endure, I decided miserably. Happy birthday to you. The words were louder than they'd been. I found myself focusing on the words, able to catch a few clearly. Happy birthday, dear Alex. I sat up in bed, the creaking of my mattress drowning out the voices for a moment. And many more. <laughs> that was Chloe. I couldn't be hearing what I was hearing. Cake time! I heard my mother call out, conjuring the memory. Tears filled my eyes. Pressing my ear against the wall, I tried to listen. Had my neighbors gotten a tape of this? Why would they be playing it, though? The wall revealed no secrets, muffling the sound even more. I shifted my head away. I could hear myself asking Chloe for another birthday beer. The slap of birthday cake against my nephew's face and the giggle of my niece. I searched frantically around my room. Was my brother pranking me? Maybe Megan? I found nothing. I expected the tape to end, but it didn't. The party died down, but the sounds continued on. I heard the car doors slam shut and the rev of an engine as Chloe and I got into our car to go home. There was no way this had been taped or filmed. We were excitedly talking about how we were going to decorate the very room I now sat in. I collapsed on the bare mattress. The sound faded. I sat up in panic. It came back. The realization ripped through me like an electric shock. Tearing my shirt off, I turned in front of the mirror, twisting to get a better look. 
The hole was endless, and laughter echoed out of it. My laughter. Her laughter. (laughs) That's it, I thought. I had finally lost it. I was officially nuts. Marbles? Gone. I didn't put my shirt back on. I lay back and listened. Listened to our chatter. Listened to Chloe and I make love. Listened to us sleep. I didn't go to work the next day. Or the next. My phone buzzed repeatedly, but... To be honest, I don't even know where it was. Somewhere near me, I guessed, without bothering to look. For the first time in months, I felt good. I felt right. This was a gift. Manna from heaven to nourish my starved soul. Chloe and I went to the zoo. She claimed that the koalas were her favorite, but I teased her that she liked the insect house best. Hadn't she gotten angry with me for that? We watched old movies together, and she fell asleep on my chest. Didn't she hate old movies? I listened to a sleep, and the movie drone on. I wished I could hear her heartbeat. But the hole was too deep, and the sound too far away. Digging my fingers into my skin around the hole, I tried to spread it wider, begging for more of this beautiful gift. Everything jumped forward quickly. The standout moments of our relationship bloomed before me once again. Even moments I thought tainted with argument and anger were sweet again. After a few days, audio alone wasn't enough for me. I dug out my phone and plugged it in. A myriad of missed calls, texts, and notifications flooded the screen, but I ignored them. Instead, I scrolled through pictures of Chloe, trying to revive my deadened imagination, just enough to add images to these sounds. It was so... Muffled at times, I could barely hear anything. I pushed the tips of my fingers into the hole and pried it apart, hoping to widen it and let more sound out. I desperately wished I could see what was happening. To watch Chloe smile at me. To see her stroke my hair. Inspiration struck me. One of the few items left to me was a pair of old kitchen tongs. This particular pair looked like an oversized pair of scissors. They'd been forgotten the growth of rust rendering them no longer usable for food. I grabbed them and dashed back to my bedroom. In front of the mirror, I turned until I found a good angle. The gift was much larger now, the depth endless. Chloe's laughter echoed out of the smooth, caved-in edges. (laughs) I had already tried to widen it with my fingers, but the awkward angle had not given much purchase. I tried to not think about what I was doing. The one time I had let the thought complete... I am trying to further open a gaping wound in my side. I had thrown up on the floor. When I removed my fingers, the opening had snapped back to nearly the previous size. Nearly, but not all the way. Sound reverberated outward with more confidence. That had made it worth it. And it was why I was so sure this would work. Watching in the mirror, I slowly pushed the tong ends into the hole. I could feel them glide along the sides of the tunnel. The sensation made me gag, but... I persisted to feed them into the hole. I'd wondered if I would be able to feel the cold metal brush against my heart or lungs, but there'd been no resistance. In fact, the sides of the gift contracted and expanded, as if trying to suck the tongs in deeper. Catching my breath, I admired my work. The tong handle stuck out, turning me into a gaunt wind-up doll. Swallowing another deep breath, I leaned against the wall, using the solid surface for leverage, I pushed the other side with my elbow. 
The pain was nearly unbearable, but the conversation, I could hear it so clearly. I could almost smell the dinner that we had been cooking that night. I had to stop for a moment, my breath coming in short, harsh gasps, but Chloe's sweet laughter pressed me forward. <laughs> Just a little more, it said. With a war cry and another push, my ribs cracked. A sharp surge of pressure and agony, followed by relief. Surely that would create more space for sound. I bit down hard on my lip, trying to distract myself from the throbbing of my side. Blood dribbled down my side, the warmth welcome against my cold skin. Get me some more wine while you're up. Chloe's voice sounded so close. <laughs> it was worth it. So worth it. But I knew I could do better. After a short break, I decided. It took me nearly five minutes to process that sound that I was hearing was knocking. I rolled off the wall. The room swam with the sudden movement. When was the last time I'd eaten? I couldn't remember. I gazed at my gift through the blood-spattered mirror. It had nearly doubled in size, boasting the entire width of my fist now. The tongs dangled loosely from the hole, blood flowing down the handles. I yanked them out and tossed them on my bed. It had hurt, but it was worth it. I rubbed my thumb along the edges affectionately. The continued rapping interrupted my thoughts and I stumbled out of my bedroom, my feet slapping against the ice-cold floor. Movement hurt, but I ignored it. What time was it? Day was all I could gather based on the light seeping in. Shrugging on a dirty navy hoodie, I cracked the door. Megan's face, lined with worry, stared back at me. Alex! Thank God! She pushed the door the rest of the way open and threw her arms around me. I bit back a yell. Her arms pushed against my sides painfully. I wiggled out of the hug quickly and stepped out of reach, making sure to face my right side away from prying eyes. Hey! I needed to make this interaction as short as possible. Every second I was away, I was missing precious memories. Moments that I had been gifted back. How could I waste them on the likes of Megan? At best, a work friend. I'm telling you, V-U-E is not a word. A rush of adrenaline slammed into my veins. Could Megan hear my Chloe? Or was the gift for my ears alone? Did one have to be chosen, or could my moments be heard by everyone? I watched Megan's face, but she was distracted by this reality. Where have you been? You haven't answered any of my texts or calls. She craned her head around me, looking deeper into my townhouse. I had no intentions of letting her off of the foyer, but she shouldered past me to my living room anyway. I moved quickly after her, staring at the small wet puddles she left in her wake. It must have been snowing out. That would explain why it was so cold in here. I really could see my breath this time, I realized. Megan turned back and pulled off her gloves. Although she didn't say anything, I could see the statement in her eyes. Jesus, dude, what did you do to this place? I will bet you. Anything. If you're so sure, bet me. My voice echoed out of my side. Despite the chill, sweat poured down my face. Where have you been? Everyone's worried. She turned her attention back to me. I rubbed the back of my head and my fingers came away greasy. How many days since I'd showered? I've been taking a hiatus. Well, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but consider your hiatus from Java Shack indefinite. 
I think I can talk to Ronaldo about it, though. If you come in today. I shrugged, too distracted to follow what she was saying to me. You do want to keep your job, right? Megan searched my face, but I kept my eyes away from hers. In truth, there was nothing I cared about less. Could she not hear it? Maybe she thought it was my neighbors. Oh, I'm confident, baby. If I win... Chloe's voice was all around us. Don't you hear that? I blurted it out, unable to contain my curiosity any longer. I don't hear anything. She hadn't even tried to listen. No, just... just listen. I held my hands up, as if surrendering to the sound. Megan cocked her head to the side like she was a dog. If I win, you have to wear that shirt my mom bought you next time we go out to dinner. Chloe's voice was nearly deafening. Oh, you're evil, Clolo. I put my hands over my ears, and Megan looked at me as if I grew another head. I really don't hear anything. Alex, how about you go take a shower, and then I'll buy you some lunch? Megan's tone had taken a soft edge, as if I was something fragile that needed care. She took a step closer. She really couldn't hear it. These memories. This gift was meant for me alone. I breathed a sigh of relief. Actually, I'm busy. Maybe next time? I'll call you in a few days. I was tired of this song and dance. I needed her to leave so I could get back to it. Okay, skip the shower. Let's just go grab some food. Or I could go get some groceries and cook you something. You do not look well. I really don't- Please, Alex. I know you're not okay. Let me help. She moved to put her hands on my arms, and I jerked back. Are you bleeding? Her sharp eyes were focused on my side. The sweatshirt sucked inward, creating a clear outline of red. I put my hand over it, feeling the need to hide it. The edges of the hole shivered against my hand. I must protect my gift. Yeah, I nicked myself on a broken bottle. It's fine. Let me see. It's the same spot as that weird hole. Did it get worse? It's fine. I want to see, Alex. She moved towards me. No! I shuffled away but was too slow. Her intruding, icy fingers lifted the hem of my sweatshirt. A cry left my lips as Megan tore the sweatshirt away. It had nearly fused to my body. Blood leaked down my side, staining the top of my sweatpants. Oh my god. I stumbled violently away from her, putting the length of the full room between us. Alex, I've never seen anything like that. You need to get to a hospital. Megan's eyes looked especially bright against the sickly gray of her face. She held her hand over her mouth as if she was going to be sick. What an ugly reaction to a beautiful thing. I love you, goofball. Get out of my home. No! You need to get to a hospital! Megan pulled out her phone. I snatched it from her hands and flung it against the wall, shattering the display. How dare she try to take Chloe away from me? I love you too, Clolo. Get out! Although I could see her hands shaking, Megan paused at the door. Her eyes stared into mine in horror. She opened her mouth to say something, but instead left quickly. I shuffled to my bed. It was over. She was going to call the paramedics or cops. Someone. Anyone. Everyone. And then this would all be over. Maybe Megan was right, and that's what I needed. 
my gift had shown me the beauty that my life had once held. It could be that again. My fingers fell into what was once a daily routine. Blood made them slip, but there was no hesitation in my movements. I placed the phone to my ear. The sharp bursts of ringing almost soothing. What do you want, Alex? Her voice was soft and familiar. A breath I hadn't known I was holding whooshed out of me. Hey. I was suddenly unsure of what to say. I had been listening to us talk for days now. It was strange to have to fill a place in the conversation with new words. How, how are you? My ear strained against the phone, hoping to catch more subtle lines in communication. A low chuckle, the sound of a smile, relief to talk to me. Anything. Why are you calling me? She sounded tired. Chloe had never been tired with me, only happy. We were both so happy together. My thoughts were a twister whirling in my head. I had called her dozens of times before. Why had she picked up? Maybe things weren't going so great with the new guy. My mind began to create all sorts of scenarios. I, I miss you, Clolo. Can we meet? I missed her so goddamn much. Tears seeped from my eyes unbidden. Please don't call me that. And that's not a good idea. I felt her slipping away. Away from the conversation. Away from me. Please. I just, I just want to talk. No, Alex. Please. I miss you so much. You, you're my everything. We were perfect. We were so perfect. We were great together. I don't... I can't. Please, Clolo. What's my favorite book? What? My favorite book. She paused, waiting for my response. Or even one of my top three. What's my favorite food? Or color? Or anything? You like, you like sunflowers? I knew her. I knew my Chloe. You like sunflowers, Alex. I like lilacs. I told you that. At least a hundred times. Look, we weren't good together, Alex. I loved you, but I felt like an accessory. You just wanted a girlfriend. Any girlfriend. I wanted you to see me, but you never did. I didn't know what to say. <sighs> she was wrong. So, so wrong. Please don't call me anymore. She hung up. I slowly dropped the phone from my ear. It was over. All over. I numbly walked over to my bed and flopped down. My head hurt, and I didn't want to think anymore. It was all too much. I listened passively to my and Chloe's laughs. We used to laugh so much together. This felt more alive and real than anything out there. This Chloe was more real than the one that rejected me. And then it happened. The day I asked Chloe to be my wife. I could hear me tease her as she decided what dress to wear to dinner. Wait. This didn't happen, I realized dully. I never got to propose. The ring still sat in its dusty box in the corner of my empty closet. But I remembered it so vividly. My favorite. Oh, thanks, baby. I could smell the sunflowers that I knew I was handing her. Stepping in front of my mirror, I twisted to peer at the hole. The blood had lessened to a trickle. I had lost a lot. My head was swimming, but I focused as hard as I could. 
staring into the darkness, wishing I could watch this moment, live it. And then I saw it, a light from deep within the hole. I pried awkwardly on the edges, trying to widen it even more. My nails dug into my flesh, tearing at the edges of my gift. Yes, there we were, small but visible. I recognized the shimmer of my Chloe's hair. I needed more. I gripped the edges of the hole and ripped outward. Sharp agony lanced through my side, and the edges ripped under my dirty fingernails, blood running anew down my ribs. But it was working. I needed more. The hole grew bigger. I could feel a physical vacuuming inward that wasn't there before. As my gift guided me, just a little more. Deep from within myself, I watched us eat dinner by candlelight. Our first date spot? You're so cheesy, Alex. I remembered that, didn't I? I could see a serene smile on my own face. But it was almost like I could see Chloe through my own eyes. It was dizzying. I wrenched harder, blood making my fingers slip. Chloe, you mean the world to me. You're my everything. My lips moved along to the speech. I began reciting the speech I had practiced for so long with perfection. My other's voice was drowned beneath my own. And suddenly I was there. Chloe's eyes shine with tears of happiness as I finished. I never want to live another day without you. I couldn't live without you. Will you marry me? Yes! A million times, yes! Chloe nearly stomped on my feet to grab the ring and slip it on. A fragile gold band with an underwhelming diamond. She beamed at it with pride. But my Chloe would never mind. She didn't need anything fancy. And then I was back, standing in my bedroom, the moment gone. The silence of my empty apartment was deafening. My side ached and bled, and I fell to my knees, unable to stand any longer. It had been mine, hadn't it? For that moment, Chloe's eyes had stared into mine. I had been there. I needed that. I deserved that. Can't it be mine? It's always been yours, baby. I've always been yours. Chloe's voice sounded different for a moment. There was more of it. Magnetic. Her need felt physical, as if she was throwing her arms around me and dragging me to her. What do I do? I'd give anything. Anything. Just a little more, baby. Just open up a little more. I could see the edges shivering as they undulated and convulsed ever inward, beckoning me to Never Neverland. Of course. Of course. I could do that. What could a little more hurt? I'll be there soon. I miss you, baby. I can't wait to see you. Now you see why I'm leaving. I found my piece of heaven, and I'm going to take it. I hope that you'll cheer for me, and I'll cheer for you too. I think there's a little piece of heaven out there for everyone. I hope you find yours. See you on the other side. Alex.
As a child, losing your parents must be an extremely harrowing thing to go through. What can at least help you through the pain, however, is having a beloved relative who can take you in and become your protector. And in this tale, shared with us by author Scott Weiser, that's exactly what happens. A bond so strong is formed, in fact, that this man will do anything for his carer. Performing this tale are Dan Zapula, Aaron Lillis, and Sarah Thomas. So love and protect the one who's protected you. Do whatever you have to. Make any sacrifice to look after Nana. There are so few things I remember about the night my parents died. I was very young. Mom and Dad had left me with my grandmother for the night while they went to a movie. I remember sitting on Nana's lap as we watched the late-night TV programs. There was a knock on the door and a flashing red light visible through the living room windows. Nana opened the door and greeted a policeman. I heard the word, accident. Nana held my hand all during the double funeral, now and then wiping away tears and bending over to kiss the top of the head of the one she called her favorite boy, me. The boy who already looked so much like her son, so much like his father. There was no question I would be staying with Nana. Apparent her second time around, Nana, or Harriet to her birth certificate and friends, was more than a grandmother pressed into extra service, more than a surrogate mom. Nana's love was unwavering, and I could always rely on her guidance. I didn't lack for pals and playmates in my childhood, but none of them was ever a best friend. That was Nana. Once during my teen years, I felt so much gratitude for my Nana and everything she'd done for me that I walked over to her and gave her a warm hug. Nana, I think you are wonderful. I just wanted you to know. She said nothing. Perplexed, I looked at her face and found a grimace. She spoke with a hardness in her tone I'd never heard before. I... I know you mean well by saying that, but you don't know everything about me. Not even your father did. I wasn't always what you call wonderful. I wasn't always Nana. I've done things that were wrong. I've hurt people. More than once, and very badly, and I- Nana, I love you. Nothing quote-unquote wrong you've done will change that, and I will always, always be here for you. I promise. At this, Nana offered up her familiar smile and mussed my hair. If you insist, favorite boy, and don't think I won't remember your promise. I expect nothing less. And with that- our household storm blew over.
Nana and I managed just fine on our own over the years, though we often had company. Sylvia had been Nana's friend since their girlhood. A vagabond if there ever was one, Sylvia still needed a place to land now and then. Thus, we would have as our house guest either a free spirit, Sylvia's words, or old hippie, Nana's in playful jest. It was during one of Sylvia's extended stayovers that I had one of the, well, oddest experiences of my youth. Nana was out and I was having a snack in the kitchen when Sylvia welcomed a visitor to our home. She was an anguished-looking woman in her early thirties and very quiet. The two entered the guest room where Sylvia always stayed and closed the door. I could hear the two women talking, though not clearly enough to make out at first what was being said. Then, a short while later, I heard the voice of a little boy coming from the room. I moved closer to the door. The boy was chattering and laughing, and I heard him say the words, I love you, mommy. The women emerged from the room not long after. Sylvia's guest wore a look of gratitude and relief, and her cheeks were wet with tears. The women clasped hands, the younger silently mouthing, thank you, to Sylvia before leaving. Stunned, I retreated to my room. Nana came home later that day. I was still unnerved and asked just what was going on with Sylvia. Nana rolled her eyes at the question, already impatient. Sylvia has always had a gift. Yes, it's genuine. She can reach out to the other side, if you want to call it that, and something takes over. Many people have found comfort in Sylvia's ability. Frankly, I've always found it a trifle upsetting. This is the last we'll speak of it. And so it was. It wasn't the last time Sylvia shared her gift, though. People suffering through a loss have a knack for finding one another, it seems. They lean on each other for support. They share information that might ease another's hurt. Word gets around. All sorts of people came to visit Sylvia when she stayed with Nana and me. There was the elderly widower whose wife told him how much she'd cherished their 55 years together. One visitor was a young man whose father told him where he'd stored the will. Information the father had failed to share while he was alive. There was the daughter whose mother informed her that her death had been no accident. The scenario repeated itself time and again. Two people enter a room where a third voice is soon heard. I heard them all. The years passed. Sylvia found religion, as they say, and no longer offered her unique services. She spent more and more time with us and eventually moved in for good. Nana and Sylvia jointly hosted my high school graduation open house. Nana and Sylvia helped me pack up and move downstate to start college. It was only Sylvia, though, who called me at school late one afternoon. Harriet has had a stroke. Please, hurry home. I got home too late to say goodbye. Sylvia held my hand all during the funeral. For days I didn't speak and refused to see any visitors. 
I would not and could not be consoled. I didn't know what to do. Until, suddenly, I did. Let me speak to her. Let me hear her. I know what you can do. I just need to know that she's still somewhere. Sylvia protested. Sylvia quoted scripture. Sylvia begged me to let the dead rest. No. She was my best friend. Something seemed to give way in the sad old woman. She was my best friend too, and I miss her very much. Then she told me about the process. A few hours later, we were ready to begin. That evening, Sylvia lit a single candle in the middle of a table where we sat at opposite ends. She whispered words in a language I didn't understand. Then she asked Nana to join us. The candle flame flickered in the otherwise dark room. Sylvia nodded to me. It was finally time for me to do my part. Nana, can you hear me? Several moments of silence followed. Then Sylvia, in Nana's unmistakable voice, spoke. Yes, my favorite boy. I was so happy to hear Nana again. I had so many questions and didn't know where to begin. How are you, Nana? Is anyone else there with you? Sylvia's head pitched forward, her chin resting on her chest. A slight tremor shook her frame for several minutes. Then, slowly, she raised her head. Then the screaming began. You would always be here for me, and I need you. Help me! I panicked and could barely get words out. Nana, I don't know what to do. How can I help? How? Do what you promised. Be here for me. Just say yes, please. Yes! Then, not only could I hear Nana, I could see her too. She was sitting at the table with Sylvia and me. Healthy, radiant, with that smile I'd known all my life. Sylvia was overjoyed and hugged the best friend she thought she'd lost forever. I stood up quickly, knocking my chair over, walked around the table, and... disappeared. I just wasn't there anymore. I was heading to my new home to keep my promise to Nana. Now I'm here for her, in her place, in this place, always. They're hurting me again. I'm burning. Folk tales can vary wildly, even within the same region, 
and even about the same subject. One person might interpret a tale as horrific, while another sees it as more wholesome. That's the case in this tale, shared with us by author David H. Varley, when an anthropologist travels to Scotland to investigate a particular myth. Performing this tale are David Alt and Andy Cresswell. So listen to all the retellings, take in all the perspectives, try and piece together the wider picture when you're being told about The Terrible Man. In the autumn of 1919, I had travelled to Scotland with the intention of conducting research for a new book, a treatise on the local folklore of the Scottish Lowlands. Several years previously, I had produced a similar volume on the folklore of Northern England, which had been a modest success, and in 1895 I had collaborated on a study of Icelandic folk belief that had run to a fourth edition. Scotland then seemed a logical next step for me. I had always thought it a liminal place, halfway between the frozen wilds of the Romantic North and the grounded sensibilities of my England. My practice was to journey from place to place, to gather where local people gathered, and to listen to their stories. Taverns were fine places for this, and although the local Scots had an inherent distrust of an English gentleman, they would nevertheless unburden themselves once a little money had supplied them with drink or tobacco. There is great enjoyment to be had in the company of a superstitious people, particularly when hearty fare and board are in great availability, and the glorious scenery of the lowlands was much to my liking. My enjoyment of the research trip, I may say, was as great as the speed with which I amassed material for my book. Many of the stories I collected displayed the motifs and figures familiar from the folklore of Europe as a whole. The ugly woman who becomes beautiful, the, the drunk man who journeys into fairyland, the unlikely origins of certain plants and animals, the desperate phantom of such and such a jilted lover of local celebrity. These were fodder for my work, yes, and I delighted in the oftentimes uniquely Gaelic details or adornments that decorated these local legends, but what I really wished to find was a pure Scottish tale. I believed I'd found one as I toured the ancient kingdom of Fife. To be sure, many of the same legends I had found elsewhere were here in evidence, but I began to hear references to a local figure called the Terrible Man. This excited me greatly, as this story seemed wholly new and quite unlike the usual narrative forms I had encountered. The identity of the Terrible Man seemed to vary depending on who told the story. Some said he was an ancient sorcerer who had achieved immortality, or that he was Ahasuerus the Jew doomed to wander the world forever. Diverse names from antiquity, real or otherwise, were mentioned. Merlin, Judas, Pilate, Wotan, Cornelius Agrippa. Never before had I found a figure identified with so many of history's darkest actors or mythology's greatest monsters. Most, though, identified the terrible man as either death or the devil. All agreed that the terrible man had come to Scotland to carve out his own kingdom or fiefdom, and that he ruled there still, 
A common alternative name for him was the true Duke of Fife. I met a fascinating gentleman in Kirkcaldy who, like me, was passing through. Dr. Lord was a historian at the University in St. Andrews and well-versed in local knowledge. It seemed that he himself had made something of an amateur study of the terrible man. It was widely held, he said, that the terrible man was both young and old, strong and frail, handsome and ugly, and that his rule was tyrannous and benevolent. Lord related a curious custom practiced by superstitious villagers. On Walpurgisnacht, they would draw blood from a finger and let it fall on their doorsteps as an offering to the terrible man. He would claim nothing else for a year, and in return for this tribute, he would ensure that their crops were good or their nets caught many fish. Those who failed to make the tribute risked the wrath of the terrible man, who might come for them to spill their blood upon his own doorstep. This unusual practice, Dr. Lord suspected, reflected medieval beliefs about witchcraft which had survived into the modern age. I agreed with him and pronounced myself intrigued to observe so ancient a custom still in use. Dr. Lord and I became fast friends, sharing the mutual enthusiasm of the traveling anthropologist. I learned that Dr. Lord was working on a journal article in which he hoped to link the legend of the terrible man to the historic case of one Douglas McKinley, a local man of Dunfermline who had been burnt as a witch in the mid-1400s. This was fascinating to me, and might perhaps prove useful to my own work on the folkloric aspects of this legend. In short, Dr. Lord made me promise to call on him at St. Andrews, where he would show me his research, as well as a number of historical documents concerning the terrible man that had come into his possession. When I arose the following morning, Dr. Lord had already departed for his home, I fully intended to follow, but instead of proceeding directly to St. Andrews, I resolved to spend a few days going along the Fife coast. It is an exceptionally beautiful part of the island nation to travel through, and I hoped that in the various remote fishing villages I might yet find more legends with which to furnish my book. I might, perhaps, even uncover some more information about the terrible man. Thus it was that I found myself that evening settling down in a rough but comfortable village inn, its windows looking out towards an old stone harbour and the cold North Sea. A few glasses of ale or whisky were enough to make some of the local fishermen warm to the subject of their legends, and I was regaled with interesting stories and local mythology. Much of it, of course, was similar to that which I had encountered in Kakordi and other places, I was just about to ask about the terrible man when a sudden sound interrupted me. It was a quiet sound that somehow managed to carry over the noise of the inn in defiance of how sound ought to behave. It came from outside and seemed to be approaching. Although the inhabitants of the inn did not cease from talking, there seemed a sudden expectancy to their manner. The door swung open, and in walked a man of a very different character to the other customers of the tavern. This was no fisherman, but a man of noble bearing. 
He was a young fellow, perhaps in his mid-twenties, and handsome. Brown-eyed and brown-haired, he wore a beard like the other men, but unlike those on the faces of the fishermen, it was neatly trimmed and fashionable. His dress was in the manner of a country squire, a fine tweed suit, hard-wearing but elegant, and the golden shimmer of his cufflinks, watch-chain and large signet ring all proclaimed a man of some wealth. I did not wish to stare at this unexpected man, lest he meet my gaze and embarrass me. As it was, I saw a smile flash over his face just as I averted my eyes. As he walked towards the table that served as a rough bar, I noticed that he was not entirely a vision of youth and strength. He limped heavily on his right leg and supported himself by means of a fashionable gold-handled walking stick which, every time it made contact with the stone floor, produced the tapping sound that I had heard. Coming out of my reverie, I discovered that, in the few moments I had diverted my attention to the gentleman, my fisherman companions had deserted me. It was most vexing that I did not wish to immediately begin interviewing other persons. Instead, I busied myself with sorting through and arranging the notes I had taken. The young man had reached the bar. Without saying a word, the landlord had poured a glass of his best whiskey, one which had been denied even to me, and the gentleman accepted this with a good-natured smile. He then engaged the landlord in a brief, hushed conversation before, to my surprise, limping over to my table and taking a seat opposite me. He spoke in a refined voice that held no hint of Scots. Good evening. I understand from the landlord that you have come to this place in search of stories. If you will pardon my intrusion, I might perhaps be of assistance. I am well versed in the folklore of this area. I am unaccustomed to being approached by willing interviewees in my research, much less ones of obvious bearing and distinction. Though I have managed to achieve moderate success in the academic world, I am not of prosperous origins nor the product of an expensive education. I am acutely aware of this and know my place in society. Perhaps this is why I seek such low company in my research. The gentleman's youth relative to my own age helped matters somewhat. Experience is something that no amount of money can buy and no refinement of birth can supply. I thanked him for the kindness of his offer and introduced myself as well as describing my purpose in coming to Scotland. He seemed delighted by the thought of it, though when he told me his name, a sudden upsurge in the din of the tavern quite obscured it. I was too embarrassed to require him to repeat it, and instead asked him to begin wheresoever his fancy took him. The young gentleman was a natural orator and storyteller. The ancient lore of his mysterious land flowed from him in words that were elegant and dignified. Some of the stories were those I had heard before, but told in a manner infinitely superior to those of the common men of women to whom I had spoken. Others were entirely new and delightful. I heard of the spirit who lives in the rock pools and feeds on women's whispers, of the great phantom cat that appears in all blacksmith's yards during the feast of St. Anthony for an unknown purpose, of the secret month that falls between May and June when time in the mortal world is stilled and the fairies hold their courts in human houses. 
all these and many more. I listened in a kind of trance, caught up in the power of my companion's speech, interrupting only when I was obliged to ask the landlord if he could provide me with something to write upon. I had filled my notebook entirely. The young gentleman sat in the manner of a king holding court, radiating relaxed power and easy authority, despite the ordinariness of our surroundings. The only thing I noticed that struck me as odd was the way he continued to hold the handle of his walking stick in a firm grip, even when sitting. I would have thought he might be more comfortable resting it against the table. The gold of its handle and the gold of the signet ring upon the hand that held it so tightly glinted at me queerly in the half-light of the tavern, so that the young man almost seemed a true king of mythical antiquity, a King Arthur with a golden scepter. One subject he did not approach, however, was the terrible man, and unable to contain my excitement, I found myself pleading with him to tell me all he knew of that strange figure. The terrible man? Why, yes, I can tell you all about the terrible man, but better yet, if you follow me, I can show something of his domain. Not more than a mile and a half from here lies a space sacred to the terrible man. Though not noteworthy by daylight, under the brightness of the moon such as shines tonight, it is a most compelling location. As we walk there, I can answer any questions you might have about the true duke. Why, yes, yes indeed. Lead and I shall follow you. He stood and, leaning heavily on his stick, walked towards the door. I followed him and we emerged into the moonlight of the quiet street. Glancing at my companion in this new setting, I perceived that I had perhaps overestimated his youthfulness. Mayhap the dim, yellow light of the tavern had cast some strange illusion, or perhaps the silvery light of the moon cast its own spell, but I saw that the gentleman, though of an undeniably youthful countenance, was clearly approaching middle age. I marvelled at my own foolishness. It may be, I thought, that as a man approaching my sixtieth year, I am inclined to imagine that any younger fellow than I must be a youth indeed. As we walked along the street, accompanied by the rhythmic tapping of his stick, I felt pushed to make some remark on his injury. I hope you will pardon my temerity, sir, but I could not help noticing your difficulties. Will you be all right with a walk by moonlight? Is it a, a war injury? I will be fine, but thank you for your concern. I know the way well, and the pain of a rough path is little different from that of a smooth road. It is indeed a war wound, though I bear it with what grace I can. The war with Germany was a, a terrible thing. I wondered whether I had offended my companion. I thought it might be tactful to return our conversation to the agreeable topic of folklore. What, then, can you tell me of the terrible man? I have heard that he is the devil, or that he is an incarnation of death, or that he is an old god of the Northmen, or even that he is some historical malefactor such as Judas or Merlin, who lives immortally. Who do you think he is? The gentleman seemed to consider the question for some moments. Why need he be any one of them? Can he not be all of them? Or none? 
One immortal man is, in some sense, all men and none. He possesses a consciousness that has no temporal limit, and so in time must reflect all consciousnesses. Why not say, then, that he is Merlin or Lucifer, or Douglas McKinley, for that matter? It is as good an identity as any, but of no real use or understanding. Goodness gracious, that is indeed an unexpected and complicated answer. The folklore of Fife must be strange indeed to have produced such a metaphysical quandary. My apologies. This is not local law, but merely my reflections on what the terrible man represents. Stories beyond number try to name the terrible man, using the names you have used and many more besides. But the entire endeavor is wrong-headed. The terrible man has no need of names, nor does his nature allow for them. They fall from him like dew from leaves. The gentleman spoke wistfully, almost with a note of sadness. By this time we had left the village entirely, walking an exposed path along the Fife coast. Despite our movement out onto a dirt track, high above the sound of the surf, I could hear the measured tap of my companion's stick. Perhaps it was the elegiac tone of his speech, or perhaps it was the slight, salty breeze that blew at us from over the waves and tugged at my companion's clothes and hair, but I began to think that I had grossly over-imagined his youthfulness. The moon shone greyly on his hair and beard, longer and more unkempt than I had noted, and the lines upon his face suggested an age comparable to my own, or even slightly in advance of me. What I had taken in the dim light of the tavern to be a suit of fine tweed was a garment made of something closer to rough, homespun wool, longer and more shapeless than a jacket. Nor was the gentleman's walking stick the stylish cane I had thought it to be, but rather a rough-shod staff with iron, not gold, bands. How strange that I should only notice this so long after meeting him. I was suddenly conscious that we had left the village far behind. Where are we going? That is a better question, and one more easily answered. Or perhaps not. There is a section of cliffs nearby known as the Duke's Doorstep. It is a space that is meaningful to the terrible man. I have heard that doorsteps are central to his mythology... How strange that a cliff, of all things, should share that connection. Doorsteps are liminal spaces, neither inside the house nor out of it, part of the architecture, yet removed from it. Cliffs are much the same, being both of the land and not of it. These cliffs, they are the doorstep to his kingdom. They are that which separates the sea, which is not his world, from the land, which is... My friend, you approach the threshold of his strange kingdom. Such words, such wisdom, and such intensity of expression. I believe heartily that I was enthralled to that gentleman who, who spoke with all the authority and knowledge of a great sage. And behold, I realized that it was indeed a sage with whom I spoke, whose fierce eyes blazed from a face heavy with lines and sallow flesh, 
whose long hair and beard the years had long since punished to a snowy white. As he walked by my side, this ancient figure was clothed in a great woolen robe far darker than the moonlit night that surrounded us, and he leaned heavily upon a support that was more a great jagged metal spike than a staff, something pitted and elemental that had been ripped from the veins of the earth in ages past. Yet it still made that ominous sound. I have heard that local people spill their blood on their doorsteps to show fealty to the terrible man. Why is this, and, and what connection does it have to these cliffs? The people of this kingdom know their true ruler, and do him sufficient honour. Blood is young by the standards of the terrible man, but it is as old a thing as humans can offer. Like the doorstep, blood outside the body represents that which is simultaneously both within and without. Blood only has function inside the body and only has meaning outside it. Surely you can see why such a thing is a fitting tribute to the true duke. What use to him is gold or silver? This land is his. It inhabits him as much as he inhabits it. The people spill their blood on the threshold to his being. We had reached the summit of our walk, a great promontory by the standards of the low-lying coast of Fife. The sea dashed the rocks fifty feet below us, a sheer cliff face rising up to our position. The gentleman had spoken true. By moonlight this place was one of fierce wonder and beauty, weird and compelling beyond any easy human understanding. And there, by the light of the moon, I beheld my companion as if for the first time. He was both the distinguished young gentleman and the hideous ancient sage, fair and foul, somehow combined in the same body. By the baleful light of the moon, his hair and beard were all colours and none, and the long hairs seemed to writhe and float with a force of their own. The vast woolen robe that he wore appeared to move in response to a great wind that belied the gentle breeze I myself could feel, its dark undulating folds merging with the night around us, until I could not but believe that he wore the darkness itself around his body. In his hand, both gnarled and youthful, he held something that was neither stick nor staff, but a great sword whose point stabbed at the earth and along whose menacing length there seemed to be flickers of silver fire. You have time for one more question. Ask. He spoke in a voice barely above a whisper, but it cut through the night air. You may wonder that I did not instantly flee, but there was no disobeying that voice, so potent was its authority. I know not what manner of bewitchment was on me at that time, but all power that I had to act was removed from me. Though I knew myself to be standing upon a clifftop in Fife, only a scant walk from human habitation, it nevertheless seemed like nothing so much as some nether world or ill-fortuned hell into which I had foolishly stumbled. Why... Is he called a terrible man? Because he was there before the universe began. 
and will be there still long after it has dwindled to dust. Gods, men, even matter itself are as nothing to his scope, passing in the blink of his eye. To humans he is cruel, or capricious, or dependable, or just. He is all and none of these things. He is the eternal constant, changed only in how he is perceived by mortal men. He is constant, and to any mortal creature, constancy is terrible. We were now standing right on the cliff's edge. Despair filled my being, the unfathomable gulfs of our spinning universe yawning widely in my mind. Everything I knew, everything I ever hoped for, everything I was, was stripped from me. Whether by weakness of mind, body and spirit, or by the exertion of some dreadful external force, I fell to my knees, bowed down before the gentleman who stood before me. I have no earthly idea whether it was my will or that of another that caused me to incline my head and silently offer my neck to that terrifying figure. In that awful moment, when all the world seemed rent into impossible dualities, when the real and the not real were one, I was both shattered victim and willing supplicant. With a curt nod, he accepted my sacrifice and slowly raised his fearsome sword high, preparing a strike that would sever my head and spill my life's blood upon the ancient stones. I took a deep breath, my last in this world, and prepared for death. At that moment, suddenly, I felt the ground shift beneath me. The turf on which I knelt lurched away, and the gentleman spun out of my view as I fell backwards into the moonlit abyss and the distant embrace of ice water. When I awoke, I was in a hospital bed in St. Andrews. The nurses already knew my name, and it seemed I had been the beneficiary of a series of fortunate coincidences. Somehow I had survived my fall from the cliffs, avoiding either being drowned or dashed upon the rocks. My floating body had been found by some fishermen returning to port after a night spent trawling. It was they who had carried me to the infirmary at the university. There my injuries were treated, but as I was in a comatose state from which I could not be roused, I lay there in mysterious anonymity. It was at this point that the acquaintance from my travels, Dr. Lord, called in at the infirmary to visit a colleague with whom he was on friendly terms, and, catching sight of me in a ward bed, instantly recognised me. Letters were sent to the institutions with which I am associated to inform them of my predicament and to beg that my next of kin be contacted forthwith. These letters, it transpires, were unnecessary due to my regaining consciousness after more than nine days of death-like stillness. Aware of my academic credentials, the nurses were inclined to treat me with respect, though I only partly disclosed the chain of events that had led me to this place. They forbore to treat me as a madman. I sent for Dr. Lord, who was kind enough to visit me immediately. 
I had a long talk with him, which I will not reiterate here, but I believe he parted from me a more cautious and more worldly man. I have not heard from him since, but I hope in all sincerity that he took to heart my exhortations, that he burn all his materials relating to the terrible man, and never again seek to penetrate his mystery. My next action, against the judgment of my nurses, was to arrange for my immediate transport to Edinburgh. St Andrews is a fine and civilised city, but it too lies in the ancient kingdom of Fife, and I would not remain there one instant longer than I had to. I had met the terrible man. I had travelled in his kingdom, and I had followed him when he called... Exactly where he led me I cannot say, nor do I believe that any man could answer that question. Wherever that cliff-top was, it was somewhere and nowhere. It was Fife and not Fife at the same time. Wherever it was, it was not my world, and it is only my belief in the certainty of this which allows me to continue to have some vestige of a normal life. I have seen things beyond any explanation, and have dealt with a being who far surpasses mortal understanding. Had not that section of cliff collapsed, I would now be dead, and some part of me curses that landscape for sparing my life. Though I live, I feel still the inexorable pull of the terrible man. I understand the appalling inconsequentiality of my existence in the face of a universe far wider and darker than I had ever dared to imagine. It has been several years now since that fateful night on the cliffs of Fife, and though I have never again seen or heard of the terrible man, I cannot fully escape him. I put aside folklore as my focus. I no longer have the stomach for it, and any mention of the subject serves only to recall to mind my ordeal. But as well as the mental scars, I am burdened also by a most violent physical complaint. Though I was profoundly lucky to survive my fall from the cliffs, I did not escape entirely without injury. The bones of my right leg were shattered by my drop. Though treated by the medics and St Andrews, my insistence on leaving immediately for Edinburgh by a rapid and bumpy coach disturbed the healing process completely. Now my leg aches and can scarcely bear my body weight without considerable pain. I am consequently obliged to walk by means of a stick and everywhere I go, I am accompanied by that damnable, damnable sound. In our final tale, we meet a man who years ago had a near-death experience and started to live his best life. 
We also meet his friend, who throughout the subsequent years noticed numerous strange changes in his pal despite his newfound enthusiasm. And in this tale, shared with us by author John Cumming, we begin to find out posthumously what exactly happened to Kyle's pal that day up there in the skies when his plane failed. Performing this tale are Atticus Jackson, Graham Rowett, Sarah Thomas, and Nicole Goodnight. So take a closer look at how your friend's life played out. Uncover the mystery of what happened. Put yourself in the shoes of someone becoming Robbie Shelton. Robbie Shelton used to tell a funny story when he was still alive. I probably heard him run through the damn thing 20 or more times, but I always smiled and played along when people asked about it. It had become somewhat famous among our extended social circle. Robbie knew how to play the crowd, always refusing to tell the story at first, building the anticipation, and begrudgingly agreeing when the interest was at its peak. My daddy always said that I thought the sun rose to hear me crow, and, well, he was right. All right, all right, well, settle in then. It's a long one. Kyle, I'll need your help. That smile and shrug with an oh well gesture. The funny thing about the story is that it wasn't funny. At least it wasn't to me. Nobody was laughing when it happened and we lost contact with Robbie when he was flying 35,000 feet in the air. I remember sitting there, screaming into the radio down at our communications building, worried I wouldn't hear Robbie if he responded. But he didn't. For nearly 28 minutes, Robbie Shelton vanished. And then, the punchline. So, there I am. Robbie would always be leaning forward at this point, by now, everyone listening was fully absorbed into the story, wondering when the tale would transition into the comedy they had expected, but hooked on the surprising action nonetheless. I'm flying completely in the dark at this point, in a thunderstorm, hollering into a radio that isn't working, flipping switches that aren't lighting, and all I see out my window is black. Not a damn light on the ground. Robbie's eyes would always glaze over for a moment at this part. I suppose that during every retelling, he briefly imagined himself back in that position of helplessness, stuck in a thin metal tube, miles away from safety. At this point, Starburst starts to dip down, and I've still got no damn control over the thing. So I close my eyes and say my prayers. Kyle, what were you doing at this point? Calling my lawyer in the morgue, I would say, or sometimes cracking open the scotch. People listening usually laughed, relieving some of the tension they hadn't realized had built up. Then they would turn eagerly back to Robbie to hear the climax of the story. Then, just as I think I'm going to hit the ground and blow myself to hell, I see a light down below me. Looks like a house. So I pull up with all of my might. Next thing I know, I was barreling like a train through a field full of corn. I kept on rolling for damn near a mile before coming to a stop pretty close to the farmhouse that I'd seen from above. A young girl ran out with a hunting rifle, pointed the damn thing right at me. Robbie stood up here and mimicked looking down the barrel of an invisible weapon. 
I opened the top and stumbled out, and the girl's eyes were bugging out like I was a space invader. I was fairly certain that I'd survive the damn fall only to be shot in some cornfield. He always spoke with the diction of an older man, telling his stories in the same methodical sense I imagine a cowboy would have around a fire in the Wild West. The material was good, but Robbie probably could have made a trip to the supermarket sound like a Homeric epic. So, I put my hands up real slow. Robbie would raise his hands as he spoke. At this point, the world's spinning around me and my head's pounding, and I'm not sure if this is a dream or just hell. So, I say the first thing that comes to my mind. Got any whiskey? (laughs) Listeners burst into laughter here, silently pleased that the story had regained its levity. I swear to God I did. And she goes, we don't have whiskey. My legs give out at this point, so I take a nice sit in the dirt and look back up and say, rum will do just fine, ma'am. Bullshit, someone would yell out, laughing despite their disbelief. It's all in the police report. I read it myself. I'd reply. And it mostly was, along with a lot of other details that Robbie avoided mentioning. And you know what they say, one eyewitness is better than ten hearsays. The girl repeated it all to the cops when they came. Robbie was full of folksy sayings that I loved and hated. Sometimes he would sprinkle in a particularly strange one and slyly wink at me when he thought nobody was looking. This time, though, he kept the retelling fairly streamlined. Then the real kicker. This young girl puts the gun on her shoulder and runs up to me, taking my pulse, realizing I wasn't a threat, I suppose. Sir, you're in Bent Tree, Utah, she says. This is a dry town. We don't have any whiskey or rum. I had flown nearly 200 miles west out of Colorado all the way into Utah. Then I said, shit, I am in hell, and passed out. (laughs) Robbie always smiled and began to laugh when he finished. If I didn't know better, I would have believed that the whole thing was a damn hoot tour. But I knew it wasn't. Years later, his wife Joan confided to me that he had nightmares, often, where he would wake up sweating, kicking flailing off the bed. That he wouldn't know who his own wife was, where they were, or even his own name. After the story finished, Robbie would talk about waking up in the hospital with me and the whole staff of the Sharp Flyers Association at his bedside. His first question upon waking up was how much he owed for the corn he wrecked. That part of the story always did make me laugh, because I remember how grateful I felt that my friend was safe that he was alive. That is, until we got sued for $10,000 by the farmer, of course. Robbie Shelton died a month before the seven-year anniversary of his famous story. He was only 33 years old. The doctor said that it was sudden heart failure, that his organs just went dark for reasons unknown. Almost like the power in the starburst had... I was sad that I would never see my friend again, but more devastated by what he'd left behind. Joan, his wife, and Delaney, his daughter. The funeral was called a celebration of life and asked for donations in lieu of flowers. Joan worked hard, and she mostly succeeded in making it an uplifting event. But, at the end of the day, a burial is still a burial. No drunken family members or wailing attendees, but a hanging silence that rang with shock 
in misty unreality. Weeks after the funeral, I got a call from Joan asking me if I could help her with packing away Robbie's things. I couldn't help but wonder if she had waited, maybe hoping she could avoid this entirely, hoping he would return. It's still so... surreal. I nodded, squeezing her shoulder. It almost feels like he's still here. Like any minute, he'll walk in, trudge mud in with his damn boots, bitch about the traffic. I could tell that Joan felt conflicted about what to leave in his office, but I was happy she decided to put his things away. Leaving a shrine to the dead only serves to hurt the living. We had packed for the better part of three hours, and it was already past eleven at night. I know. It's hard because it feels like it came out of nowhere. But I didn't really believe that. After Robbie's near-death experience, he acted like he had a new lease on life. Him and Joan met only weeks later, and they were married a year after that. Nine months later, Delaney joined his growing family. Robbie traveled more than he ever had, bringing his young wife and child to Alaska three years back, in Paris last summer. Hell, he even kept solo flying. He was reinvigorated, but for some reason I think a small part of me just accepted the fact that my friend had died when we lost contact with him up in the air. Then seven years later, when he actually passed, I felt oddly relieved. Like I had been holding my breath, waiting for the other shoe to drop. I have something for you. A box full of flight documents, some pictures and knickknacks from sharp flyers. Pictures that Robbie saved of you and him. I scanned pictures that I wanted to keep. I hope you don't mind. Not at all. We've got time to sort things out. I don't want to take anything that- No, no, it's okay. I need time, I think, Kyle. I'm taking some time off from the hospital and me and Delaney are heading to California to stay with my sister. Now that everything is settling down, I... I think I need to get away from here for a while. I understand completely. Delaney walked downstairs and crawled into her mother's lap. The Shelton's cat Moose, which Joan had been petting, let out a bitter meow and hopped to the ground. Moose sat underneath the sofa, staring up at Joan and waiting for the child to leave so he could reclaim his perch. Mommy, can I see the picture of Daddy again? Delaney's big brown eyes, which matched her father's, struggled to remain open. In the morning, Laney. Joan ran her hand slowly through the small child's hair. She told me Delaney had been crying all night. And even if death itself was still a mystery to her, loss was not. Now, though, she looked peaceful, asleep in Joan's arms. I'm taking her back up. Thanks for all your help, Kyle. Please, take that box. I smiled at her and nodded, for some reason reluctant to take anything of Robbie's. I suppose I also wanted to leave this behind for a while. I didn't open the box until a couple of days later, on March 3rd, the seven-year anniversary of Robbie's near-death experience. 
The first item in the box nearly inspired me to throw the whole thing away. It was a copy of the police report from his crash. I'd memorized the damn thing. I knew that the plan made contact with the ground at 10 p.m., but a thin red line of blood trickled down from a cut on Robbie's forehead. I could recite his conversation with the farmer's daughter. Underneath, though, lay happier memories. Printed pictures from us back in college. A copy of our flight test reports at Sharp Flyers. Other memories lay inside, too. Like pictures from when we had skydived. Maps from our climbing trip out in Colorado. And our entry bracelets from some shitty EDM concert Robbie insisted we go to a couple of years back. At the bottom of the box, though, underneath all the memories, hidden underneath a flap in the bottom of the box, was something that wasn't supposed to be there. Robbie's aviation watch. Joan had been searching for it when I had been there, as it had been clearly specified to go to Delaney when she was older. Oh, shit. Robbie and Joan's ranch-style home was painted a rusty red and brown, set right at the edge of the San Juan National Forest. Isolated and idyllic, it was drizzling when I ran from my car to the front door, and a cold mist clung to the early spring ground in their yard, rolling in from the woods to the east. I held a small coat over my head as a weak cover from the rain, and the aviation watch underneath my jacket, even though I knew the rain wouldn't have harmed it. Joan, it's Kyle. But I knew I was too late. Her car was gone, and it was already near noon. She was probably already halfway to California with Delaney. I peered in through the window, wiping water away from it. But the house was dark. Empty. Even Moose appeared gone. Thunder rolled overhead, along with a violent wind that turned the rain sideways into me. I held the coat at an angle and turned to make my way back to the car. When I stepped off the old wooden front stoop, I noticed another set of boot prints. Fresh and leading around the house. The marks were big. Far too big to have been Joan or Delaney's. I stood there, looking back between the safety of the car and the track of indented prints leading around towards the back of the Shelton's house. My legs moved without my consent, and I began following the muddy tracks around the house. The coat I held overhead was soaking wet now, as the rain flew without direction, down and up, left and right. In hindsight, part of me knew what I would find before I turned the final corner and reached the back porch. Robbie Shelton sat, motionless, at the old glass table where him and Joan used to host summer barbecues. He was staring out at the forest, his back facing towards me. But I knew it was him. He was wearing his old denim jacket and those work boots that Joan always complained tracked in mud. The rain whipped into his face and body, and his hair dripped and hung long, almost to his shoulders. Bobby? I hoped that my words would make this hallucination vanish. Robbie didn't turn when I spoke, but he let out a visible breath, like he was registering my words. My wife isn't here, nor my child. 
No. They went away for a bit after... the funeral. Robbie turned, finally, allowing me to see his face. I'm not sure what I expected. Rot. Decomposition. Bones protruding and eyes bloody. But it wasn't any of that. He looked the same. If anything, he looked... smoother. His usual thick, unkempt beard was trimmed, almost painted on. Age lines that had formed around his eyes and forehead, and smile lines that Joan used to tease him about had vanished. And Robbie wasn't smiling now. His eyes were different too. Gone with the warm, kind irises, replaced by gray-blue spheres that bore through me. Like... He was studying the idea of a man in front of him, not actually speaking to one. There is a joke like that. A man fakes his death, attends his own funeral to surprise his friends, family. It doesn't end well. The man ends his own life out of shame, misery. Uh, Jesus, Robbie, what the fuck is going on? I finally gathered the courage to walk up to the table and sat adjacent from him. Are you saying... Did you fake this somehow? What did we bury? No. Not a fake. Robbie Shelton is dead. His voice was low, but firm, hovering just above the constant pattering of rain onto the glass. I let the jacket I held fall to the ground and the rain washed over me, soaking anything still dry. I was talking to a dead man. Getting wet was no longer a concern. Robbie had turned his gaze once again towards the woods, staring straight ahead. You are Robbie Shelton. I wasn't sure if I was trying to remind him or convince myself. His voice sounded the same and his face almost looked the same. But it was all off. His diction was different. In those words, I heard a different man. Behind those eyes, I saw a stranger. I don't think I am. I came here thinking I was. Thinking I could be. To see my Joan. To see Delaney. But I think it's a good thing they were gone. Robbie, or... Whoever this was shifted something in his pocket and placed it on the table. A long, wide kitchen knife, sharp, covered in thick red blood and what looked like hair. Robbie, what the hell is going on? They needed experience with something else before I was done. I kept putting it off. What are you talking about? Robbie kept his gaze focused into the forest and slowly raised his hand to point forwards. I followed his finger into the woods and saw nothing but the trees swaying in the violent winds. But when I turned my gaze up slightly, I saw what he had been staring at. Jesus! I pushed back from the table and nearly fell to the wet porch floor. Up in the trees, right at the edge of the backyard, was Moose, with ropes tied to each leg spreading him apart. He had been partially flayed, 
and his skin hung off his back in a sickening arc, still attached by several stringy cords of tissue. Thick bloody drops fell to the ground below him and had made a small black and red puddle. The taking of a life. Robbie turned to me then, seemingly just remembering that I was there. Kyle, you remember that night when I went flying? I nodded in response. He didn't need to clarify what night he was referring to. It had been stuck in my mind for seven years. What happened up there, Robbie? I didn't think of him as Robbie, my friend, anymore. But what else could I call him? He turned to face me directly, calmly turning the knife on the table so the tip pointed towards me, leaving a coating of blood that stained the glass in a wide V-shape. I took a side glance at Moose hanging in the trees and wondered if I would be joining him soon. Do you really want to know? The question caught me off guard. Of course I wanted to know. Didn't I? It was the question that had lingered in the back of my head for years. But now, seeing where this road led, I wasn't so sure. I... I... I do. It was... the wrong decision even without the benefit of hindsight. But I knew I'd regret not knowing for the rest of my life that the mystery would eat me alive. Sometimes, it's better to make the wrong decision you can live with than the right decision you can't. Robbie, I, we were flying fine when we thought we saw something ahead of the plane. He paused for a moment smiling thinly. Starburst. That was the plane's name. Fitting. What we saw, it looked like a lightning bolt, frozen in space. A jagged line of blue and white, pulsing. We tried to fly under it, but it was massive. We radioed down to see if you could tell what it was. On our end, we heard static come through the radio, and then silence. For 28 minutes... Robbie smiled coldly. It felt a lot longer than that to us. For us, it was like an eternity. He was clenching his fist onto the knife as he spoke, and the rain, which had become a misty spray, collected in droplets that rolled down his white knuckles. We flew in total blackness for what felt like days. We thought that we would starve to death or go mad. We screamed for you into the radio, but you never responded. I'm sorry. My eyes stole glances at the knife still in his hand. Robbie only shook his head. I can't explain this. You would have to see it to understand it. I'd have to show you. Robbie stood up and moved towards me and I grabbed the bloody knife he had left on the table and held it to my best friend's neck. Robbie, back the fuck up. Something is wrong in your head, man. And, and we can fix it together. I know we can. Moose's blood on the knife now created a small line right under my friend's Adam's apple. 
and the sickening thought entered my head. Only one of us would walk away from this encounter alive. You can't kill me. I think this will do the trick. I pressed the knife in slightly. No. You can't kill me. The knife isn't what is deficient. We were standing on his porch that I had helped him build five summers back. It was the spot that Robbie and Joan broke the news to me that they were expecting a child, and where they told me they wanted me to be Delaney's godfather. I felt the strength in my arm go out. Robbie slowly grabbed my wrist and lowered the knife from his neck, and I let him. He was right. I couldn't stomach sentencing my friend to death a second time. I'm leaving this place soon, Kyle. This is the last time you'll ever see me. In turn, your last chance to know. But I have to show you. Why show me? They want to see how you'll react. They? But Robbie remained silent, waiting for my answer. I thought about running, briefly wondering if I could still escape. But Robbie's eyes told me that I wasn't leaving without seeing what he had to show. I had escaped this truth for seven years. Now, the truth had come calling. Show me. Robbie released his grip on my wrist, and I let the knife fall to the porch floor into a small puddle of water. He slowly reached out, placing his hand on my forehead. When he touched my forehead, a shock ran down my bones. And then, I was up in the air, behind Robbie's eyes. Robbie Shelton flew alone in the starburst for hours, farther from home than we had ever imagined. Screaming, crying, praying, alone. The starburst lights had turned back on in the cockpit, but no engine control. Distantly, stars twinkled calmly, rhythmically, all around the starburst, their dim light the only thing he could see. He almost fell asleep, when suddenly, the plane sounded like it was ripped in half. The cockpit opened and his body was pulled out by hands unseen. I know this now, because I've seen it. Because I, too, have experienced it. Our body floated in the cold vacuum of space for almost 20 seconds before losing consciousness. The plane had felt silent for the hours we had drifted in the dark, but now, floating alone in the emptiness of space, silence carried a new meaning. Silence before was like a cacophony, the blaring sound of breath, the pounding drum of our beating heart, the raging current of our blood flowing through veins, now replaced by complete and utter nothingness. The last thing we saw was something almost indescribable. A shapeless, asymmetrical form covering half our view. Black and slithering in the emptiness of space, with a thousand arms reaching out of its center. All expanding outward 
a cracking ice. The titan moving towards our floating body in dead silence. We yelled or thought we tried, but some formless hand touched our forehead and another shock rolled through our skin and bone. And then, darkness. We awoke lying down on a metal table in a dim, freezing room. Whispers came out from the shadows, and into the light stepped a tall man. Can you hear me? His features, at first blurry, began to materialize. He was wearing a thin flat jacket and jeans, almost the same outfit Robbie was wearing earlier, and bore a strangely familiar face. We tried to speak and began to panic as we realized our mouth wouldn't open. We tried lifting our arm, wiggling our foot, screaming, but all control had vanished over our body. Just blink if you can. And I could feel our heart rate increasing, and we began hyperventilating, our eyes opening wide in terror, the whole world closing black around us. Calm him down. Cold skin pressed on the sides of our head as something pinched sharply into our brain. We moaned in pain before a small wave of warmth rolled over our body. Our heart rate slowed, and our vision cleared. Your life is a full one. His voice, why was it so similar? Full of memories that I understand you feel are significant. You cherish. Now, you can receive a new purpose. The tall man walked up to us. He leaned over the table, grabbing our shoulder, and looked up at a large black window up above the table. We slowly lifted our gaze to the window and saw the light glinting off of hundreds of twinkling points. We realized that what we had seen earlier was no field of stars outside of the plane. They were eyes studying us. The light of the starburst glinting off of them as they watched us for hours, blinking, studying. Now they continued to study from the window above. The tall man leaned over us once more. Do not worry. He looked down on our motionless body. Be glad. I am like you now. The tall man touched our hand and began melting into it, seeping into our skin, stretching our flesh with hot pain that rang with lightning as our bones cracked to accommodate the unwelcome invasion. The tall man inched his face closer to ours, slowly pressing in, clawing through our skin until our view was constrained with salt blue eyes. I began to scream then, unsure where I was, who I was for a moment, as I pushed backwards and landed back in the present on the cold, wet wooden porch. You... you're a fucking monster! What the fuck? 
How did you... You're that thing from the room. You were never Robbie. You felt what your friend did for moments. It sticks, doesn't it? And it did. My thoughts felt hazy and off. I knew I was Kyle Fields. But it was like a secondary mind was there too. I know his memory. I lived behind his eyes for seven years. I'm not him, but I'm not what I once was either. It's disorienting, isn't it? It struck me that Robbie, or the tall man, was also a pawn in this whole thing. Playing a game where it didn't fully understand the rules. Where the strings are pulled by someone else. Far away. Why? Why would you do that to him? To yourself? The tall man, or Robbie, or whatever it was, slowly crouched down so he was on eye level with me. So we could learn. Robbie's memories were useful, but we needed more to truly become. After the flight, we gave Robbie ideas. Travel the Earth. Converse. Read. Learn with others. Find a mating partner. Procreate. And then die. The final step. Nearly. We cannot begin to understand humanity through one man. Life. Death. Birth. The cycle continues. There is so much still to see. That's just life. Study your own fucking people. Death is something that my people have not experienced for a very long time. I've been given a rare chance being here. But birth, the beginning of life, the creation of it, that's something even rarer. That's a gift even he does not possess. Robbie pointed upward. Momentarily I considered my own faith, presuming he spoke of God. Quickly, though... I remembered Robbie's last vision as he floated through space. An unspeakable form, moving in total silence in the absence of light, sending down his pawns so they could study the ants below. You're moving and talking, but you aren't alive. You know that, right? The thing in Robbie's body smiled. I am not here to understand everything. You know what sent me here. Why? Why would this thing care about what we did? About the intricacies of a human life? About how it felt to live? Die? Fuck! Why did it go through all these links? Because it is curious. And because it can. Robbie stood up from his crouch and began walking off the porch towards the woods. He turned to me when he reached the tree line. Be glad. You are like me now. He turned into the wet early spring wood and walked forward through the tall pines. I sat and watched him, soaking wet as the cold rain set into my bones. 
for the third time in seven years, I said goodbye to my friend. This time, I never saw him again. It was only two weeks later that Joan and Delaney returned from California, seemingly refreshed and ready to face the reality of Robbie's death. I had removed all traces of Moose and the knife, hoping to spare them from any further pain, giving them the luxury of hopefully moving on. Part of Robbie stayed with me, though. After that vision, after becoming Robbie for that short time, I began to find myself acting like him telling our story to friends with the same charm and cadence, almost subconsciously beginning to dress in his outdoorsman style. More strangely than that, I began to think of Joan and Delaney often, worrying about them, desiring their company. An instinctual urge overcame me to take care of Delaney, keep her safe, so much so that I began to dream about her. So, I began to visit them, frequently, helping out around the house, driving Delaney to school or daycare when Joan was swamped with work. I even took Delaney to the animal shelter to pick out a new kitten when she finally got over Moose's unexplained disappearance. Joan and I had always gotten along, but now when we were comfortable together, it was like Robbie would take over. And the more time I spent with her, the worse it became. Six months after Robbie's death, return, and final disappearance, I found myself at Jones three or four times a week. It was during one of these visits that I noticed just how powerful Robbie's presence was. While Joan was talking to me about buying some used car and trading in Robbie's old truck. Well, let's go and check out the car together. Don't buy a pig and a poke. What did you just say? I shook my head, going off autopilot. It's just... Robbie used to say that all the time to me. I always teased him about it. <laughs> I guess he'll live forever in his annoying sayings. <laughs> <laughs> I faked a laugh, and she joined in. Joan and I slept together ten months after Robbie's death. She cried in my arms after it happened, out of feelings of guilt, betrayal. I felt like I had betrayed him too, not because it had happened, but because the entire thing felt so damn natural, as if we had been together for years. I felt like I was impersonating him. Around that time, I decided to reread the police report from Robbie's accident, wondering if I could see something different, understand something new. Nothing stuck out to me until the transcript from the farmer's daughter. You see, when Robbie told that story, it was always the punchline. The cowboy who cheated death, asking for booze as his reward. Cue audience laughter. But now, I saw something else. I saw my friend falling out of the starburst, bleeding, wide-eyed, full of inconsolable fear over what he had seen, yelling for alcohol because it was between getting drunk or clawing his own eyes out. He wasn't joking about being in hell. 
After what he had seen, Robbie truly thought he was in it. I have no idea why he felt the need to retell the worst night of his life and relive it over and over again. I'm not sure if he knew either. Now as I recount this, it has been nearly a year since Robbie's death. Although we are still working out the details, I am to move in with Joan and Delaney in the coming weeks. Part of me knows this isn't right, but I've also become keenly aware that my decisions are no longer fully my own. It wasn't until yesterday that I began to understand why the thing in Robbie's skin showed me that vision. Why he wanted to leave a piece of my friend Robbie Shelton inside of me. But now, it all makes sense. I've developed a nightly routine with Joan and Delaney. Joan and I make dinner, talk about each other's days, take a walk in the San Juan forest, make love. Sometimes I'll wake up from a nightmare, screaming, only for Joan to calm me down. They're always the same. I'm back in the starburst, surrounded by eyes. The Titan moves through space, only this time towards me, reaching out. I try to scream, but all I can hear is the wet sound of a thousand eyelids blinking. Almost daily, I catch myself saying or doing something I know Robbie would say or do. And yet, despite the nightmares and how fucked up the whole situation is, I've never been happier in my whole life. Robbie's mind drove me here, but my heart has decided to stay here. That's what I kept telling myself, at least. At this point, I'm not sure who's sitting in the driver's seat. After dinner, I'll read to Delaney until she falls asleep, something I know that Robbie used to do. Last night, though, Joan told me something before I went into her room. She what? She's been telling her friends and teachers that you're her father. Oh. No, it's a good thing. I love seeing you two together. It's just... confusing her a bit. She moved towards me on the couch and rested her head on my shoulder as she spoke. She needs you in her life, but I don't want her to forget him. That's all. I feel the same way. I'll talk to her about it tonight. Delaney was lying on her side, facing away from me when I walked in. I pulled up the chair next to her and put my arm on her back. She stirred gently. You're late. Hey, sweetie. Listen, you know I love you, right? She gently nodded her head. Well, your mom told me what you've been saying at school. I had no idea how to proceed, how to remind her of her dead father without breaking her heart. You see... I know you're not my real dad. It's just easier to explain to the other kids. Oh, okay. Well, if you ever want to talk about him, you know you always can. Delaney turned towards me and smiled, and I saw that she had fully woken up. 
In the dim light of her room, I saw her eyes shine for a moment. A sharp, grayish blue. I blinked, and they returned to normal. The same old chocolatey brown color she inherited from Robbie. Can you read to me, please? Life, death, birth. The cycle continues. And if they wanted to understand humanity, why not start then from the eyes of a child? And now they had someone watching over her. Beyond that, they had achieved something I think that they valued even more. The power of creation. Sure. I read to her late into the night, then sat in the chair beside her bed long after she had fallen asleep. I wondered if I had the time or agency to leave all of this behind, worrying because I knew that even if I chose to leave, Robbie had already chosen to stay. The spells are wearing off for now, but the magic will linger. The shop will be open again next week with more spells to enchant you. Visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.